This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 187 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest this week is Andy Ellis, Chief Security Officer of Akamai Technologies. He shares the professional journey that led him to Akamai, along with his recollections of the early days of online data sharing when bandwidth was expensive and pipes were small, and the uncertainty of being part of an ambitious internet startup. We'll learn about his management style, the importance of a company culture built on trust and communication, and of course, we'll get Andy's take on threat intelligence. Stay with us. I started working for my folks a long time ago as a construction site cleanup crew. Hmm. Uh, I think that that is a security job, which probably most (laughs) people don't. Because, you know, it's really sometimes just about the hygiene, making sure people don't step on nails. It's a Hmm. big piece of what you have to do. Uh, and on the bright side, you're always trying to get back to something normal. But that's not what most people would traditionally consider a first security job. Uh, I've been a patrol guard. I walked for a condominium complex when I was living in Vermont. Uh, but my first cybersecurity job was in the Air Force. I graduated from MIT with a degree in computer science with a focus on theory. Uh, my you know, discipline was understanding all of the problems that computers couldn't solve if computers really existed, which Mm. I think is a great grounding for security. (laughs) Uh, And went into the Air Force doing information warfare for Central Command. I was stationed in South Carolina, uh, which is the headquarters for Central Command Air Force. Deployed into Egypt for the Bright Star exercise. Did a tour up at Hanscom Air Force Base here in Boston doing uh, test and evaluation and then got out and came to Akamai, where I've been for just over 20 years. Wow. What was that transition like going from the military to the private sector? You know, I think for me, given I'd had a lot of jobs in the private sector before, it wasn't like, you know, I'd spent a career in the military and now I have to figure out how to be in the private sector. I'd mm. been in the military for three and a half years, but it was still an interesting transition um, and I'm transitioning like right as the tech bubble's about to burst. It hadn't yet burst. This is uh, you know, early 2000, but the it's starting to happen. And I remember doing all of my interviews. Most of the jobs in security were these consulting firms that were trying to massively scale very quickly. So they didn't want to pay you anything. But when they heard you were a veteran, they were very excited because like, oh, you were paid nothing by the military. So you'll be <laughs> happy with slightly more than nothing. Uh, it was really oh, fascinating, but, but it was body shops. They wanted people to go out and tell other people what to do following mm. some script. And I wasn't really interested in that. And Akamai, I had a f- bunch of friends who worked there and you know, they wanted somebody to actually help secure this platform that they foresaw being this planetary scale platform. And we're right. You know, my my recollection of, of Akamai, when, when you talk about going back 20 years or so, you know, from my broadcast days, was that in the early days of the Internet, uh, really pre-YouTube, um, any time you summoned up any sort of digital video, chances are somewhere in that link was buried the word Akamai, you know, and, and we, did, we weren't 100% sure why. 
but it just came up time and time again as, as sort of being synonymous with having digital video served. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. You know, the early days of Akamai, we were a very basic CDN. It was object delivery. So instead of delivering a whole site, we would just deliver objects. And so they all came off of our domains. So people would, you know, it was called Akamizing. You would take your URL and you would prepend to it. You know, you'd put an Akamai host name and then a couple of fields and then your normal URL. So we knew where to go get the object from, um, which allowed people to steal service. They could just Akamize their own stuff. So you know, in addition to like protect our platform and make sure that we were configured correctly, I started to take a role in securing our products. Like, it was nice that people could instantly optimize. We got a lot of customers because they broke themselves, uh, put their stuff on our platform, and then called us up and said, how do we pay you for this? Oh, um, wow. Which is kind of a nice way to get business because you, know, you sit there and you just saved them. And you can be like, oh, like here's what our normal rate card is, but here's what the discount uh, is. Because what I think people don't realize is how much, how expensive bandwidth used to be. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. we used to talk about thousands of dollars per megabit per second. Like that was commercial grade bandwidth pricing. And so you would print up a rate card and a month later it was obsolete because we were driving prices down so fast. So you could do deep discounts that people were really, really happy with. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what has it been like for you to to have been witness to this transformation, to have been there when things were really, I mean, that engine was just really starting to rev up. Um, and I mean, it's been an inter- interesting 20 years from you, I, 20 years for you, I imagine. It really has been. And I think it really proves one of the things I've come to believe a lot about success in anything, which is it's a combination of being in the right place at the right time and having an ability and a desire to execute with a great idea and a fantastic amount of luck. Mm. And I think it's easy for people to look and only take credit for one of those. You know, your success, you attribute to your hard work and your brilliant ideas and other people's success, you attribute to the fantastic luck. But I think (laughs) we had a bit of both. Um, You know, I think had we started the company a year earlier, I don't know that we would have survived. You know, somebody else might have come out of the ashes. You know, our stock after we went public was over $300 a share. And at its low point was like 57 cents. Like we're the only company in, I I think, publicly company history to survive a 600 to one stock price drop. Wow. Nobody does that because that's a sign that your your company is doomed. Um, But we survived that. And... Partly, I I think a big piece of it is that while we do try to focus on solving solutions, we actually don't focus on lock-in. You know, we really do want money. We want people to keep paying us. But there's a lot of solutions that I think really emphasize that you have to use only our service to solve your problem. And we've recognized that our customers are a very diverse customer base. And so rather than trying to solve solutions only one way, we try to solve solutions through technology pieces that plug into whatever the customer is doing. And so it means that customers have used our services in ways we never anticipated. And sometimes we turn those into products. We're like, oh, that was brilliant. Let's take that idea to market because they put together four features in a way we had never conceived of. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that's you know, luck, but it's also execution. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like it also um, points to company culture of, of, of a certain amount of, of risk taking to be able to say, well, maybe there's a product here, uh, you know, that we didn't see coming. Um, but I'm also thinking about, you know, what, what that journey must have been like for you when things were, were low when things were at their worst um, to say, you know, we're going to stick with this. We, we think there's a, a path to, uh, to, to ride this out. There's a future for us here. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a sort of two different ways, hats I have there. You know, one is just as an executive at the time, but also just as the employee. Like, how do you decide to stick around? Uh, and it's, it's interesting because actually my wife worked for Akamai for a while, and so did my mom. Uh, and we actually all shared a house. We had a two-family house in, in Medford. Mm. Uh, and when Akamai stock was at, you know, 57 cents, my dad said, you know, we should just buy some more stock if you guys are all in on this. And we all looked at him and said, are you crazy? Because if the company goes out of business, <laughs> three of us are unemployed. Um, and, you know, when the stock hit $100, he was like, look, that that $5,000, you know, that, that's a lot more money these days, you know, if we'd actually had invested that, right? That's a million right, dollars. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You, you look at that. Now, now uh, we probably wouldn't have held it that long, but... It's really hard, and sometimes it's about it's a little bit of faith, right? Mm. You don't have to be able to see the path out of the woods to know that you're on a path, and the path might fail, but at the same time, it might succeed. Um, are you a football fan by any chance? I enjoy watching a good football game, but I have to admit that I I don't get all that invested on on which team is is ahead. But I I do enjoy the game itself. Okay, well, it's no secret to anybody who knows me that I am a diehard Patriots fan. All right. Uh, and I was at Super Bowl 51, which was the Super Bowl against the Atlanta Falcons. Mm. And for those of you who are listening who don't remember that, that's the game where the, the Patriots were down 28 to 3 in mm. the third quarter. Like you're near the end of the third quarter. Nobody's ever come back in a Super Bowl from being behind by more than, I think, 10 points. And the last team to have done that was the Patriots. Um, you had come back in the Super Bowl two years prior from 10 down and barely eked it out. So there's no victory possible at this point in anybody's mind. Right. But, you know, you're a fan sitting there. Like, you could get up and walk out. And some of us don't forgive the celebrities who claim they had reasons to walk out of the game, just to be <laughs> very clear, Mr. Wahlberg. Um, but you're sitting there. And in a sense, your job is to accept that failure is inevitable and then put that in a little box, right? Get over the emotional loss of failure and say, but I'm here right now and my job is to figure out how to help us succeed. And as a fan, that means you stand up and you shout when your team is on defense and when it's on offense, you're quiet and you cheer for first downs. Like that's about the only thing you can do. And you don't invest yourself further, but you don't de-invest yourself. Right, You hold sort of both minds of failure is inevitable, but success is possible. I'm going to live in the world of success, right? I'm going to do what I can to make success happen. But if it turns out that they're ultimately not successful, look, I've already processed the failure. I'll pull it back out of the box and move on. I'm not going to get worse because I tried to succeed. And I think that's hmm. a place that people have really hard time is further investing themselves when failure seems inevitable because they think the loss will be worse. Mm -hmm. But the loss isn't any worse unless you make it worse. And that was how we approached the, that era. We said, what do we have to do? 
Um, we were very transparent within the company, like company all hands. You could ask anything. And I remember at one of our all hands as we were you know, on the way down, one of our engineers, uh, I still remember who it is. I'm not going to name them. <laughs> you know, don't, don't want to you know, either shame or celebrate them necessarily. You know, ask the CEO, you know, because we all got this education in public company finance. Like how how does the street measure us? Like every quarter they're walking through it. And the CEO was asked, the question was, well, obviously when we go bankrupt, when? It wasn't even an if, it was a when was the question, right? But right, when right. we're going out of business, it won't be when we have no money left in the bank. Because we have to spend money to go out of business. I think this is a thing a lot of people don't realize mm-hmm. is that you don't wait until you have no money to declare failure because you have to pay the people who are going to close the doors for you. And you have to mm-hmm. pay off some creditors. So he says, how much money is that trigger point? How much money do we need to wind down the business? Mm. And the CEO and CFO were really up front. They said, that, you know, about $100 million. Let me tell you, a few quarters later, when we had $90 million in the bank, that was a really scary conversation, hmm. right? We, don't, we now don't have enough money in the bank to pay everything off, and we said we'd start winding down. Now, the reality is we hit 90 as we've, we're making this inflection back up, right? We're now level. We're no longer losing, bleeding money. It had been slowly coming down. It's the sort of the local minimum, and everything comes back up after that you know, all hands meeting, but it was one of these conversations because he gets back up and he says, you know, you, you said at $100 million, we were going to wind down the business. We're now under it. What happened? Right. And it's like, well, let's walk you through the numbers and why that 100 was correct, you know, a few quarters ago, but now it's not the number. And now we can see that we're not going to crash and burn. We're leveling out and we're going to take off. But having had that a uh, culture of transparency and establishing that you know level the, to to the degree that you could a level of trust with your employees. I, I would imagine you can then you can have that conversation. You can say, okay, that's what we thought at that time. Here's what we think now. Here's why. Here's why we believe these things are going to happen now, and we're not lying to you. Yep, and that's that's what's really helpful. I think a lot of companies. And, and employees don't understand what it takes to not lie. Um, you know, we still get this. We get this question probably uh, every time people say, is there a reduction in force planned? Uh, and they sort of get the same answer every time, which says, well, we always consider whatever the options might be and we'll do what's best for the company. And it's really a non-answer. Mm. Um, and the challenge is, is that, Look, the, any company that's planning a reduction in force, like the moment they, they start planning it, um, technically they're not planning it. They're merely considering an option because um, if it's material, as soon as you plan it, you have to announce it to the street within 24 hours. So you mm. create these sort of you know, plan, you know, thoughts about what you might do, and then you approve a plan and execute on it sort of overnight. But right. you can't tell your employees that, not because you don't want to be transparent, because the moment you tell them it's now material information, you've blacked mm-hmm. them all out. You have to go tell the street. You have to execute on a thing that you haven't really thought all the way through yet. So, like, there are questions that when I was in the Air Force as a cadet, we talked about um, improper questions because cadets had the honor code. We weren't allowed to lie. So as a result, there's questions you're not allowed to ask a cadet. <laughs> ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies. Right. So like, imagine <laughs> that you have like a squadron of cadets and somebody stole something. 
Mm-hmm. Right? You can't walk around and ask each one of them if they did it. If you don't have a reason to suspect me, you can't use the honor code as a weapon against me. Interesting. And that's a, a thing I carry with today that I, I think it would be interesting if more people understood that when mm-hmm. there's material information in a company, you know, don't try to pry, you know, you know, pry for the answer and trap somebody in a question because you're creating an atmosphere where they have to not trust you as somebody that they can be honest with. How do you describe your own management style with, with the team that you work with? What, what's your approach there? Um, so I think of management as being a form of stewardship. I think that's something that's sadly missing in a lot of uh, corporate cultures and other cultures as well. People think of management as sort of power. I own these people. They do what I say. You know, Mm. I only have to listen to my boss. I think of it the other way around. My job is twofold. It is, first of all, to maximize how productive my employees can be by getting the environment out of their way. And Mm. second, it's to help them grow while they happen to work for me. And that's at the end of the day, that's it. Like there's a lot of details that come into that, but the mission that I have, you know, to make the internet suck less or to, you know, ensure a safer destiny, like that's almost second to the make sure that the people who are executing on that mission are well taken care of. Because if I do that, then the mission gets taken care of as well. Yeah. Uh, so that creates an inclusive environment, I like to think, and you know, surveys within my team tend to suggest that's true. Because if you're getting things out of people's way, you know, you're finding out what hurts them. You're reducing the energy cost that they have just to exist. And if you're doing that from a bureaucratic perspective as well, you're going to also run into a lot of the inclusion-exclusion dynamics that can make a workplace problematic. But, it, I mean, it also comes right back around to trust again too, right? Because if, if they feel as though you have their back – um, you're going to hear from them. They're, they're going to have those conversations with you, even if they're hard conversations to have. They, they really will. Um, and look, it is hard, especially if you're a junior employee. Like, you know, we had a, a, a all hands. We were telling stories uh, recently. And I was telling a story from 20 years ago, and I sort of slipped into that 20-year-old personality. And I said something <laughs> that I probably shouldn't. It was a throwaway comment. It wasn't like, horrific end of the world, but it was surprising to some of my junior staff. Um, and they didn't mm. know whether this was like, were they the problem for being wound up for about this? Cause they were surprised by it. Should they say anything? They didn't want to be perceived as, you know, a problematic, you know, troublesome person. So some of them went and did a reasonable thing. They went and they talked to other folks on my staff who came and talked to me and said, Hey, like this bothered some folks. And I'm like, Oh, I totally see how that did. Y'all work on improving it. Let's not make it a big deal. Like, I recognize mm-hmm. that they don't want it to be seen as a big deal. and But it's really important that you create that culture where asking the question, hey, this made me uncomfortable. Am I wrong for that? And you know, 90% of the time, the answer is no, you're not wrong. Like 10% of the time, actually, you were made uncomfortable and you probably need to think about whether that was on you versus the person speaking. But even if it's not on the person speaking, they need that feedback. Like there are times where I've said things and somebody gives me feedback and my first answer is, I can't believe you care about this. Hmm. But my second answer is always, but my job as a communicator is to make sure that doesn't get in our way. Mm-hmm. So I want to know that, look, if you don't like the color blue and my slides are blue, 
Um, that I should know that you don't like blue. I might think you're a little odd for disliking the color blue, but if I'm going to brief you, maybe next time my slides will be in green instead. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. Not, yeah. not a huge cost for me. Right. Now, in this particular case, I mean, was it important to you to get, you know, word back to those people who, who had their dander up a little bit that you, that you acknowledge that, um, you know, maybe you, you uh, were in error here? So I think the the way that I did it was the the person who brought it to my attention. You know, they we had a conversation and they went and they took that back and said, "Yeah, you know, I've raised it under control." Right. Um, and sometimes it's it, I have done the now. Let me do a formal, more public apology. You know, following the rubric of the six elements of an apology. Right. Um, partly so that other people can see it. But this one I didn't, partly because one of the, the sensitivities people had was they were concerned that they were making too big a deal out of it. So I didn't want to make it a bigger deal. I see. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to feed into the, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this and I made the boss apologize. Even though right. I personally think apologies are free. Like, really doesn't cost me anything to apologize. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. other people don't always see that. I want to switch gears a little bit with the, the, the time we have left together and, and get your take on threat intelligence um, and the part that you think that plays in an organization's security posture. So threat intelligence is one of those phrases that uh, is very dangerous to me because it means so many different things. Hmm. Um, I think that there's really valuable cases for threat intelligence and there's some cases where there's information that is not intelligence. Um, you know, we probably get, you know, everybody who has a data feed like, oh, we'll show you every attack we've ever seen or, you know, here's a list of IP addresses that are bad. And I'm like, there's no context. That's not intelligence, right? Intelligence right. is, hey, tell me what's really going on in an actionable fashion. Um, tell me why you don't trust your own data. Like, how good is your data? Like, you know, we've sort of figured out from from our perspective that, you know, IP-based data kind of only good for about 30 days at max. Uh, the internet moves just enough that after 30 days, you really can't rely on IP data. And at 30 days, it's bad. It's not like there's a hard cutoff. It's sort of a, a decaying out. Um, so that's sort of implicit in a lot of our data that, that we're going to look at. Um, but even that's you know almost not the interesting things. Like the real interesting is what is the threat? What are the adversaries doing? Sometimes to you, but sometimes just in general. So for a lot of our products, you know, what we do is I think of myself as, by the way, Akamai is the shopping mall of the internet. This will help for the rest of the analogy. <laughs> like, what do you buy from a shopping mall? It's a trick question, aside from COVID-19, meaning you don't walk into a shopping mall anymore. Right, right. But you don't buy anything from a shopping mall. Stores <laughs> buy from a shopping mall the ability to get closer to you. And that's basically what Akamai does for the internet. Like, you, the end user, don't buy anything from us. Companies buy from us the ability to deliver that great experience close to you. That just makes me the mall cop, right? My job is protect the shopping mall. And in that context, threat intelligence is really easy to understand. If you have a group of shoplifters wandering the mall and you're a store owner, you have no idea when these people walk into the building who they are. But the mall cop has seen them get kicked out of five stores already for shoplifting. So mm. when they show up and I flash you the sign that says, hey, that's the shoplifter. You want me to walk them out the door? That's threat intelligence. Right. 
Uh, right. Or if I say, oh, even though I haven't seen these four people before, I can tell you that the current tactic is, you know, four people come in, one's loud and obnoxious and asking you questions. Uh, two of them are like standing near the the front and one of them wanders off to the back where you don't see them to you know pocket stuff in their backpack. I've seen mm-hmm. this pattern before. That's threat <laughs> intelligence where I can tell you, hey, here is actionable information that lets you make business choices about how to deal with adversaries in your world. And that that's like the gold. And I think almost all of our products aim for that. And so the better threat intelligence vendors tend to aim for that. Um, now there's a separate angle of threat intelligence, which is sort of the, the sort of the historical briefings. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, tell me what actually happened yesterday to me. Um, you know, I got popped. What happened? There's some really good value in the sort of the forensic intelligence of what else is going on, who might be still targeting you. But the the information that lets you make a decision, that's valuable. If it's just, oh, I can block some IP addresses because somebody else says they were problems, that's not really intelligence from where I sit. Our thanks to Akamai's Andy Ellis for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.